0: This is the Trails Church podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel, in community, and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 2. Each Lord's Day, we gather with the saints of the Trails Church and have the remarkable privilege of witnessing a living miracle. That's what this is. A group of people who were once dead in sin, now raised to life in Christ, we congregate to worship the God who saves. In his great kindness, the worship-seeking God calls us as his people to worship him. We begin each service with a reading from scripture through which the Lord himself invites the great and the small, welcomes the young and the old, receives the strong and the weak to gather in his holy presence. In response to his gracious call, we offer to him heart full adoration for who God is, and all that He's done in crowning us with steadfast love and mercy. We confess our darkest sins, knowing that the all-knowing One is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We are assured that before the throne of God, Sits the everlasting Christ, our great high priest, whose precious blood allows us to draw near to the throne of grace. We give thanks to the Lord for the things that he has done in redemptive history and personally in our lives. We pray as God's breath in us returns to its birth. We read the Holy Scriptures publicly. God's word is proclaimed as it illuminates hearts and minds and does a deep, redemptive, restorative work in us. In the Lord's Supper, we are seated at the table of the king as we eat from the bread of his provision and drink from the cup of his salvation. Ringing through the entire liturgy are songs of God's wisdom and ways, hymns of his salvation and grace, spiritual songs of our life together in Christ. With each element woven into our service, we worship God. That's why we've gathered, to worship God. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at a picture from the first Christian church in Acts 2 An antique picture of another living miracle. Most of this newly formed congregation were not even believers, still dead in their sins just at the beginning of this chapter. But when they heard the good news of the gospel preached, they repented of their sin and believed on Jesus as their Savior. Now they too have been raised to life in Christ and they congregate to worship the God who saves. We've learned how these Christians in Jerusalem were devoted to being a learning church and a loving church. Now you will see that, above all, they were a worshiping church. It's been said that the pages of the New Testament are painfully silent when it comes to worship practices. There is no prescribed liturgy located in the Gospels. There's no detailed manual for worship included in any of the epistles. Yet, if we were to do a survey of the whole of Scripture, not one book passes without making a valuable contribution to our understanding of Christian worship. Even as we focus on these handful of verses this morning, we find multiple elements of congregational worship in seed form that over time flower. And give life and expression to the worship of God. We don't see the whole picture here, but we do see the origin of how their life together was forever transformed and shaped by the worship of Christ. So I want to begin with two questions. The first, personal How has your life been transformed and shaped by the worship? Of Christ. How is that true of you personally? And then for us to widen the lens of that question and to say, how has our life as a church been transformed and shaped by the worship of Christ? At the center of the characteristics found in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is a church devoted to worship. The early church practiced a rhythm of as they grew in doctrine and devotion to Jesus, they gathered to worship, to encourage, and to proclaim the gospel of Christ together. And so, As we look at their example, we find rhythms of worship from Scripture that we aspire to know and also to grow in. First, we'll highlight how the church gathered to worship. Second... We'll detail the acts of worship listed in our passage. And finally, we'll see the impact of evangelistic worship. Would you stand to your feet with me, if you're able, as we read together now from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is God's holy and inerrant word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first reality to highlight is how the church gathered to worship we noticed earlier in their commitment to being together, mentioned throughout this summary description. Verse 44 is careful to include the detail they were together. They loved being together, meeting in the temple, not only on the Lord's day, but even day by day to worship Jesus and night by night, eating in their homes to worship Jesus. Their lives were intertwined as a community of faith. These new believers had shared in hearing the good news of forgiveness through Jesus' name together. They identified with Christ and the church through the practice of baptism together. And then they worshiped side by side together. Their devotion to gathering was not bound to one place, but multiple places. They worshipped publicly in the temple, privately in homes. They gathered all together, and they scattered all around. First, I want us to see how they gathered all together. We find this in chapter 2, verse 46. Before believers in Jesus were forced out of Jerusalem due to persecution, the earliest days of Christian worship were experienced within the temple and around the around the area and other Jewish synagogues. The massive Jerusalem temple provided the largest available space in Jerusalem, a natural place for teaching. The temple mount itself covers 35 square acres that people often gathered together to listen to lectures or traveling people that would instruct on things. These early Christians continued to meet in the temple regularly as a part of their life of worship. They gathered publicly with other believers at times of prayer and found the temple to be the best place for them to gather, in fact, and to proclaim the good news about Jesus being the very one the temple pointed to, the fulfillment of that temple, the Messiah they'd been long waiting for. The church gathered all together. They also scattered all around. Just as they met publicly, we also learn they met privately in homes, the church shrank down into smaller groups of Christians for the sake of continued worship, for genuine biblical fellowship. Some scholars suggest that early Christians used public meeting places to evangelize, but houses were utilized to do deeper and ongoing discipleship. From the earliest days of the church, Christians were practicing intentional hospitality, inviting other believers over to their home. For the sake of fellowship like we looked at last week. Prayer, discussing scripture, singing, sharing meals together. The church was not an add-on to an already packed schedule. It was the family they belonged to. So the church gathered all together and they scattered all around. And in everything realized they existed ultimately for the worship of God. We've said from the very beginning... That our mission is to glorify God. Our mission statement begins with that very phrase. We exist ultimately to worship Him. And because of this, we, like this early church, have intentionally created rhythms in our life together. A church gathered and scattered where we can go about fulfilling this mission. We gather on Sundays as one body across two services, and then we scatter into community groups and Bible studies and smaller groups of people for that same purpose. The environments look different. One's more formal, one less formal, one more structured, the other more spontaneous, and the church needs both. For us to continue to grow in our faith, we need to be gathered with the people of God in different environments where our faith is fed and strengthened. At the start of the sermon, I I described corporate worship as as a living miracle. I see it no other way. A living miracle. I long to gather with you week by week to worship the Lord together to stir one another up to faith and good works. The writer of Hebrews encourages us in this, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we see the day of Christ's return, drawing near, I pray that we would never lose the wonder of corporate worship, that we would be devoted to gathering and scattering together, that we might grow as worshipers of Jesus. Second, let's consider the acts of worship we find in this passage. Imagine what it would have looked like to accidentally walk into a worship service of these Christians gathering, when the book of Acts was written. Everything would seem just a little bit different than what we're accustomed to. People would dress differently. The language would be confusing to us. The culture vastly different than the one we know. Yet I suspect we would still recognize every element of corporate worship. As I thought about it, it's probably a lot like driving in the UK. You're on the wrong side of the road and on the wrong side of the car. But if you think about it, it still works. It all makes sense. And I think if we look at this, we scan this passage once again, it will all make sense to us what we're seeing happen. There will be acts of worship that we would recognize. I'm going to give you three pairs of things that we see here. The first acts of worship we find are scripture reading and teaching. In Acts 2, we have record of the first Christian sermon where the Apostle Peter quoted from and preached on multiple passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. We know from the broader witness of the New Testament and the early records of church history that the reading of Scripture was central to the worship of Christian churches. As Paul writes to a young pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says to devote, the same word we find here, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. As we fast forward about a hundred years, a man called Justin Martyr uh, describes an account of worship service of an early church. He reports: the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. The writing of the prophets would have been synonymous with the Old Testament scriptures. The memoirs of the Apostles were shorthand what we would eventually come to be known as the New Testament. And notice they read them as long as time permits. They valued the public reading of Scripture. A church may have only had one complete book of the Old Testament or a copy of a Pauline letter or a fragment of a gospel, but they read the Scripture as long as they could. The reading and teaching of Scripture played a central role in the liturgy from the earliest descriptions of Christian worship. The second acts of worship we see are prayer and praise. We see this in verses 42 and 47. The concluding verse of our passage tells us that the people were praising God. We're not told if this praise was whispered or shouted, sung or spoken, formal or informal, but we do know that praise is one of the characteristics of Christian worship. Hebrews 13.15 encourages us through him, that's Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. The New Testament is full of praises that help us understand what kind of praise was being offered by these early Christians. It was a pattern picked up from the Old Testament where you... Bless God for who he is, for all that he has done, for his characteristics and his actions. For homework, I would encourage you just to look through the scripture and find some specific praises that you might offer as praise and prayer to God. To help build your prayer life. Of course, that's no small thing to mention prayer as an act of worship. In fact, it's so important in this passage, Luke 2, it's listed as one of the four primary headings of what the church was devoted to. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which we'll get to in just a moment, and to the prayers. So we'll do an entire sermon on that next week. The final uh, acts of worship mentioned in this chapter are baptism and communion. Baptism and communion. And we don't find baptism in these verses. We have to zoom out just a little bit. But as we look at Acts 2, we see the crowd was cut to the heart with the good news of the gospel. They asked Peter what they should do. And Peter replied, repent and be baptized. That very day, 3,000 people were baptized as an act of worship. Don't miss that. Baptism as an act of worship that was given by Christ himself. Baptism was a one time act of worship, publicly identifying with Christ. Communion was a repeated act of worship that Christians continued sharing in. You might say that baptism is the front door into the household of God. Communion is the ongoing family meal. In verse 42, we read they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The phrase, the breaking of bread, is not an easy one to interpret. Good and godly people have disagreed over uh, what that means throughout the ages. While some hold that this phrase means nothing more than a common meal, I believe it must be a reference to the Lord's Supper. Kent Hughes outlines two supporting reasons for this. First, the reference stands in a long line of religiously loaded terms in verse 42. There are four terms in a row. Teaching, fellowship, Prayers and the breaking of bread. You find breaking of bread third. And so in this list of spiritual activities that are happening in the life of the church, it doesn't make sense to me that you would add just eating. You might add like walking or some kind of action that the church is going to be doing. So that's the first reason is because these are religiously loaded terms. The second phrase, though, I think is even, uh, even more compelling in verse 46, the phrases breaking of bread and receive their food are purposely separated, suggesting that after the Christians ate a meal together, then they would transition to a time in the evening where they would remember and proclaim the death of Jesus Christ in the act of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper or the breaking of bread as it quickly became known. And so as we step back, we see these Acts of worship rise to the surface. There is the reading of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, prayer and praise, baptism and communion. The church is at worship and the church is together. Is there one of those aspects that you could grow in in your own practice of worship? I wonder if there's even one of those acts that we could grow in as a church together that would come to your mind. Maybe you could discuss that in your community groups this week. And finally, I want us to note the church's practice of evangelistic worship. Evangelistic worship. There's a pattern that emerges by the time we reach the end of this chapter a pattern of worship and evangelism. After the Spirit fell on the church, we read that the believers were praising God, telling of His mighty works as unbelievers looked on as they heard these things and began to ask questions about what they were hearing. That made room for the gospel to be proclaimed. And as a result, many of those people became Christians and were added to their number. What happens on a large scale in Acts chapter 2 happens uh, in a a suggested individual case in 1 Corinthians 14. As Paul writes about the importance of order in their worship service, he anticipates an unbeliever who would uh, experience the church in worship that they would then hear the gospel in their service and right there fall down in conviction of their sin and believe in God. That's what Paul anticipates would happen, that there would be lost people attending Christian worship gatherings, that worship gatherings should be comprehensible to outsiders. And we should even expect that non-believers might be convicted and even converted through our corporate witness together. That's happened in this room before. It could happen again this morning. As a matter of fact, if you're not a believer, I want you to know that we are so honored to have you with us. And I pray you'll come as long as you will, as you explore the claims of Christ, uh, the doctrines of Christianity, and what it means to be born again to a living hope. I pray that through time with us, you would come to see that there is one true God. He's the creator and maker of all things. And out of his love and joy, he created even you. But we have this innate problem, not an external problem, but an inward one. We're born sinners in need of salvation. We're born separated from God because of our sin. We need to be made right with God. And so God, out of great love for sinners, sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect, sinless life in our place and to die the sinner's death in our place. By placing your faith in Jesus and repenting of your sin, today could be the day of your salvation. Like this sinner we find in 1 Corinthians 14, you could be hearing today the first time perhaps who God is and how to be made right with him. I pray if that's you, you wouldn't leave today without considering and repenting of humbling, kneeling before God and his son Christ. As we think about corporate worship, we've got to think about evangelism and discipleship and the ultimate purpose for why we're gathered all at the same time. Tim Keller summarized it like this. If the Sunday service aims primarily at evangelism, it will bore the saints. If it aims primarily at education, it will confuse unbelievers. But if it aims at praising the God who saves by his grace... It will both instruct insiders and challenge outsiders. Good corporate worship will naturally be evangelistic. So we've we've looked at this a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but here you find a commitment to disciple-making and a commitment to evangelism. These are both uh, unshakable values for us, but they are not the reason we gather together. They are part of the reason we get together. But there's a higher reason even than evangelism and disciple-making. And that reason is the worship of God. This is the primary reason we've gathered is for an audience of one. We've gathered because of him. We've gathered in his name. And we gather to his glory. So as we practice scripture reading and teaching, and as we practice prayer and praise, and as we celebrate the finished work of Christ, In baptism and the Lord's Supper, in all of our worship, let it be that God would be glorified. That believers might be edified and strengthened in the faith. And unbelievers might be evangelized and told of the good news of the gospel of Christ. I want you, if you have a bulletin near you, to take it in your hand for a moment. As I thought about our shared practice of worship and it being evangelistic... I wanted just to make sure and point out something that may not be evident to you. You might think of this not just as a church bulletin, but a gospel bulletin. It's a little herald of good news. But you might have missed it. So let me just make it evident. If you look down the left-hand column of, of what we go through each week, there's sort of four large headings that aren't printed in ink, But they are God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. By the way, if you're learning the gospel or wanting to share the good news of the gospel with a friend, uh, these are four helpful headings to help you articulate what the gospel actually is. And it begins with a holy God. That's where our services begin each week, with a call to worship. God summons his people to worship. Look at the content of these songs. We're singing of the greatness of God, giving thanks to him. We then typically deal with man and our need for the grace and mercy of Jesus. This is where we put our regular confession of sin and singing songs about the brokenness of the world and how Christ alone is the hope. We sing about our need for the grace and mercy of God. That leads us to the third main movement, Christ There's a prayer of illumination where we ask that the Spirit of the risen Christ would speak to us through the preaching and reading of Scripture. And then the preaching happens. And then there's another prayer that asks God to to solidify what He's done in us, to bear fruit from what He's done in us. That begins this response time. We respond by praying. We respond with another hymn to help our hearts uh, work in devotion and consecration in response to the Lord. And then the benediction sends us into the world with a blessing of God. Every week we gather around the gospel. Every week we rehearse the good news of the gospel. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Christ? And how do we respond to that? Why do we do that? Because the gospel of Jesus is the greatest need for saint and sinner alike. We don't outgrow our need for the gospel of grace. And so we rehearse it, we practice it together every week. Even this very Sunday, I just looked through the things that that has already been said or things that will be said. Let me just remind you what we've done even today. We heard in the call to worship that even the kings of the nations will one day bow before the king of kings. We sang of the God who is the creator of all things and the redeemer of his people. We gave thanks to him for all that he's done and for all he's given. We confessed the brokenness of the world and how Jesus is the only hope. We've opened the word of God pointing to the good news of the gospel and how it transformed and shaped the life of Christians. In a moment, we're going to confess our sins and be reminded that the only assurance that we have before a holy God is the finished work of the cross. We will share in the Lord's Supper to remember and Proclaim the body of Christ that was broken for our transgression, the blood of Christ that was spilled for our sin. Then, before we leave, we will receive the benediction, the blessing of God spoken over his people as we're sent back into the world. Every week we gather around the gospel. And the gospel, whether you see it or not, maybe it's like this, this liturgy here. Maybe you did see it or you didn't. Sometimes you see the gospel transforming and changing you. Other times you don't. But over time, God is committed to the good work of the gospel transforming you. And he who has committed himself will see it to completion. It is a good work he's doing right here among us each week when we gather. So I pray that in the weeks to come, when we enter for corporate worship, it won't be lackadaisical, it won't be too comfortable but we'll recognize the beauty and transcendence and holiness of these moments where God's people gather in his name above all things to worship him and that we might grow in our devotion to God and be wholly devoted to his worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the witness of this early church and how it instructs us. Thank you for these saints who have gone before Let us walk in the path of wisdom, of faithfulness, trusting you with every step. Let our lives and our life together be seen as an act of worship unto you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about the Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.